everyone. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this podcast as a free and independent educational resource, you can show your support by making a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. As longtime listeners of the show know, I put a ton of labor and love into making this thing, so every little bit adds up. You can also make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to Solomon and Scott for their recent contributions. Okay, let's get on to today's episode, part three in a series on the etymology of food words. Apples, I would argue, are the flagship fruit. I personally happen to like apples very much, but that preference aside, apples are simply abundant. Here in the U.S., they run neck and neck with bananas for the most widely consumed fruit, but beyond mere consumption, the apple is also abundant in our culture. And no, I'm not talking about iPhones and MacBooks. For hundreds of years, English has used apple idioms in everyday speech. Apple of the eye, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, a bad apple spoils the bunch, etc. The apple is a traditional gift from elementary school students to teachers. In Greek mythology, the golden apple of discord is responsible for sparking the Trojan War. In the Old Testament, Eve eats the forbidden fruit from the Tree of Knowledge, a fruit traditionally depicted as an apple. We'll have more to say about this particular apple later in the episode. While consumers might buy as many apples as they do bananas, bananas just don't get the same amount of cultural airplay. So let's dive into the etymology of this most ubiquitous fruit. For much of its history, apple didn't only mean apple. It meant apple and fruit in general. What's interesting about this earlier, broader sense of apple is that it's not unique to English. The native Greek and Latin words for apple also had a dual sense that meant apples and all fruits alike, even though these words, which we'll discuss in detail later on, are etymologically unrelated to the word apple. Melon, peach, pomegranate, even pomfrit, none of these foods are apples, yet they all derive from the Greek and Latin words for apple. After this episode, my hope is that you'll never look at the produce section of your grocery store the same way again. Both domesticated and wild apples have been around for thousands of years, and the ultimate root word of the English word for apple is correspondingly ancient. Linguists have traced the word apple all the way back to Proto-Indo-European, the first Indo-European language spoken in Eurasia between 4500 and 2500 BCE. This ancient language would over time splinter off through a series of migrations and evolve into disparate languages such as Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, Persian, Russian, the Germanic languages, and others. The reconstructed Proto-Indo-European root word of apple is something like chebol. The reason it's reconstructed is because Proto-Indo-European was spoken before the invention of writing, so its speakers didn't leave us a written record. The notion of Proto-Indo-European root words is familiar to listeners of this show. We talk about them a lot. However, this Proto-Indo-European root word, chebel, is unique. Most linguists believe that it does not belong to the oldest Proto-Indo-European lexicon, or 
set of vocabulary because its derivatives are only found in the West Indo-European languages. In order for an Indo-European root word to belong to the oldest layer of Proto-Indo-European vocabulary, we should find it distributed in both the West and East branches of Indo-European languages. However, the absence of Hebel derivatives in any of the East Indo-European languages suggests that the word emerged after the earliest Indo-European migrations had gotten underway, that is, after there was a West-East split. Another indication that the word emerged after the divergence of the oldest Proto-Indo-European parent language is that it contains the B sound. In Proto-Indo-European, the B sound occurs very infrequently. The B sound in Proto-Indo-European is usually aspirated, like B. If Hebel wasn't part of the original Proto-Indo-European language, where did the West Indo-European languages, including the Germanic languages, the surviving Celtic languages, Lithuanian, and Russian, get this word from? Hebel was most likely borrowed as a loanword. Many linguists suspect that Hebel was borrowed from Arabic, citing the word abel, meaning a fruit tree, as a possible source. In the languages and language families just mentioned, the derivatives of this word hebel all refer to the apple. However, as already mentioned, in English, apple developed a broader sense. All fruits, excluding berries and including nuts, were considered apples. This broad sense of the word existed in Old English, Middle English, and surprisingly, even into modern English as late as the 17th century. The Old English written record attests the compounds eorth apla for cucumbers, literally earth apples, and finger apla for dates, literally finger apples. The Middle English written record attests apple of paradise for the banana. And this broad sense of apple is how the pineapple got its name. Originally, the word pineapple actually referred to what we today call pine cones. In the 17th century, when English speakers first encountered pineapples, the tropical fruit, they used this original name for pine cones in reference to the newly discovered fruit based on their similarity of shape. The name pineapple wound up sticking to the fruit, requiring the development of a new term, pine cone, for the woody cones that grow from pine trees. Given this older sense of apple, meaning all fruits, you might be wondering, where did the word fruit come from? Fruit isn't exactly a new word. It ultimately traces back to a reconstructed Proto-Indo-European root word, brug, meaning to enjoy, and more recently traces back to the Latin word fructus, which had a variety of meanings. It could mean enjoyment, delight, or satisfaction, produce, agriculture, or crops, profit or proceeds, and even offspring. Among these distinct semantic categories, there's also some overlap, and I think this overlap is captured in the modern idiomatic expression, the fruits of one's labor. The fruits of labor refers to the rewards, profits, or proceeds you receive for hard work, and that's a delightful and satisfying feeling. If the fruit of your labor is actual money, that allows you to enjoy your life. If you're a farmer, then the fruits of your labor might literally be fruits. Not only are the fruits themselves satisfying to eat, 
but so is the profit you make by selling them. The word fruit entered the English language in the early 12th century via French, and it originally referred to all sellable agriculture grown in soil. Fruits, vegetables, nuts, grains, and so on. This original sense of the word fruit shouldn't surprise us since our modern, narrower sense of the word fruit was sufficiently covered by the original, broader sense of the word apple. A bit confusing, I know. There's evidence in the written record that in as early as the 13th century, the meaning of the word fruit was beginning to narrow to its modern sense, but it appears that this narrowing wasn't unanimous across the English language until the 17th century. When thinking about semantic narrowing and broadening, it's important to keep in mind that these processes happen gradually along a continuum. They also happen unconsciously. English speakers didn't spontaneously wake up one day and decide, okay, today's the day that we're going to start using the word fruit in a more narrow way. Because of the gradual and unconscious nature of semantic narrowing and broadening, you can find windows of time in the language where words that are no longer synonyms today actually coexisted side by side as synonyms. This is precisely the case with the words fruit and apple. From the 13th through the early 17th centuries, a span of 400 years, in different regions and to varying degrees of frequency, the words fruit and apple appear in the written record as synonyms, both being used to mean fruit in a general sense as we understand the word fruit today. So much for the word apple itself. Now let's turn to those Greek and Latin words for apple that I previewed at the start of this episode. In Greek, the word for apple was melon. The consensus among linguists is that the word derives from a native, unattested Southern European substrate language that transmitted the word to Greek. In linguistics, a stratum is a language that influences another language through direct contact. A substrate language, then, is a kind of stratum language that has lower prestige or socio-political power than the language it's influencing. This substrate language is hypothesized to have been spoken by native Southern Europeans living in what would later become Greece before the non-native Indo-Europeans migrated to the region. Like the original sense of the English word apple, melon too could be used to refer to fruits in general, particularly foreign and exotic fruits. The Greek word melopepon, literally gourd fruit or gourd apple, was used to refer to pumpkins and other gourds, including the fruits that we today refer to as melons. And you guessed it, this is where we get the word melon from, though it came into English through a Latin borrowing of the original Greek. In the late 18th century, the German physicist Carl Wilhelm Scheele extracted the chemical compound from apples responsible for their sour taste. Harkening back to ancient Greek, as scientists during the Enlightenment so often did, Scheele called this chemical malic acid, literally Greek for of apples. Perhaps not so coincidentally, malic acid is a prominent acid found in all fruits. Latin actually had two words for apple, pomum and malum. Like the Greek melon and the original English sense of apple, they too both used to mean fruit in a general sense as well. Let's examine them one at a time. The ultimate etymology of pomum is unknown. Like the Greek melon, linguists suggest that it derives from a non-Indo-European substrate language. 
The Roman goddess of fruit trees, Pomona, derives her name from this word, which is fitting given pomum's broad sense, meaning fruit in general. Pomum passed from Latin into French as the word pom, where its meaning slightly shifted from an apple or any fruit to an apple or any fruit or vegetable that's apple-shaped. In modern French, this word is indeed still the word for apple. Potatoes are kind of apple-shaped, and they came to be known as pommes de terre in French, literally apples of the earth. You'll recall from earlier in this episode that in Old English, the similar construction earth apples referred to cucumbers. Today, the more common French word for potato is patate, but this older phrase explains the French word for French fries, pomme frite. The Latin pomum is also preserved in English in the word pomegranate. The Latin pomegranate literally meant seeded fruit. Pomum is also the root word of pomade, a kind of greasy wax used to style hair. The oldest pomade recipes consisted of mashed apples. Last but not least, it's also given us the word pomiculture, which is the cultivation of fruit and fruit trees. The second Latin word for apple, malum, is almost certainly cognate with the Greek melon, sharing its origin in an unknown substrate southern European language. Through trade, this word is believed to have spread from Greece to the Italian peninsula, and from there into Latin. Also like the Greek melon and the Latin pomum and the English apple, malum could be used to refer to both apples and fruits in general. This word malum had a homophone. Homophones are two words in a given language that are pronounced the same but have different meanings, like the English words sure, s-h-o-r-e, and sure, s-u-r-e. In Latin, malum also meant evil or bad. This malum was a separate word, a completely unrelated word to the malum that meant apple. Malum, meaning evil or bad, has partially been passed down to English in the prefix mal, as in malpractice and malnourished, and also as part of the words malevolent and malaria. The biblical book of Genesis contains the famous story of the forbidden fruit, a fruit that in the popular imagination is an apple. When St. Jerome translated the Bible from Hebrew into Latin, he translated the Hebrew word peri, which meant fruit, as malum. But he didn't translate this word as malum because he thought the forbidden fruit was an apple. There's actually not a single reference in the original text of the Old Testament to an apple. He translated it as malum because it made for a good pun. The forbidden fruit was also a forbidden evil. Apropos, since this fruit was responsible for the fall of man and original sin, or so the story goes. Most scholars think that this pun was a deliberate choice, because there were a number of other viable translations that Jerome could have chosen from, the word pomum among them. If the forbidden fruit isn't actually described as an apple in the original Hebrew of the Old Testament, is this Latin translation solely responsible for painting the fruit as an apple in the imaginations of subsequent generations? Not exactly. As I mentioned, Jerome himself probably wasn't under the false impression that the forbidden fruit was an apple because malum could mean any fruit. Furthermore, in virtually every English translation of the Bible, even old ones like the King James Version, which is filled with tons of linguistic archaisms, you'll find no mention of the forbidden fruit as an apple. 
Historically, Jewish and Christian commentators alike have variously imagined the forbidden fruit to be a fig, a pomegranate, a grape, and occasionally an intoxicating liquid. Until relatively recently, even in Christian traditions, the identity of the forbidden fruit was not fixed as an apple. If you're an art history nerd, you may know that the Tree of Knowledge in Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, completed in 1512, is not an apple tree, but a fig tree. The depiction of the forbidden fruit as an apple became increasingly popular after the German artist Albrecht Dürer's influential Adam and Eve engraving in 1504. But artistic conventions aside, there is one non-biblical text in Anglophone literature that may have helped concretize the apple as the forbidden fruit in our imaginations. That text is Paradise Lost by John Milton, written in 1667. Like the King James Bible and the other less influential English Bible translations that preceded it, Milton refers to the forbidden fruit as a fruit. But in two exceptional instances, he also refers to it as an apple. When reading Paradise Lost in 2020, or even 1920, 1820, or 1720, it would appear that what he means by apple is an apple. But during Milton's lifetime, apple could still have been used to mean fruit in general. Milton was a well-read classical scholar, so St. Jerome's original Latin pun would not have been lost on him. Shortly after the publication of Paradise Lost, the broad sense of apple as a synonym for fruit died out, leaving an inconspicuous linguistic fossil in Milton's widely read poem that will go on to be misunderstood for the rest of time. You might think that using the words apple and fruit in the same text to refer to the same thing is an inconsistency on behalf of the writer, but not really. Would you call a writer inconsistent for using happy in one sentence and glad in another? I don't think so. We use synonyms interchangeably to refer to the same things all the time. This Latin word malum is behind the name of one more common fruit in modern English, the peach. Peach and malum don't exactly sound like cognates, and they're not. But the full Latin name for the peach was the malum persicum, literally the Persian apple. Over time, the malum part of the word was dropped, and the pronunciation of persicum was anglicized. As it turns out, the peach tree is actually native to China, not Persia, but it was through trade with the Persians that peaches first reached Europe. All right, I hope you loved today's show. Again, I'd like to remind you that if you're a regular listener and you want to help keep this boat afloat, you can make a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. You can also make a one-time donation of any amount to paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. I also encourage you to leave a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use because those really help the show grow and give me feedback about how I can make the show better. I'm on Twitter at at wordsforgranted and Facebook as wordsforgranted, and you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. I hope you have a great day. 